Hi Church, my name is Abby and this is Emma and Charlie and we're going to be reading the Bible for you today from the book of Hebrews. Our first reading is from chapter 10 starting at verse 19 through 25. I'll take a minute so you can grab your Bible. Once again, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now Emma's going to read from chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, still in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, everyone, it's wonderful to be here with you. If we're yet to meet, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at the Bridge Church. I can't wait to see you face to face. But I have the joy of bringing us back to our series that we've been coming to through different parts of the year, looking at one another verses in the Bible. There are about 100 um, different verses in the New Testament that speak about how we're to relate to one another, and they're really important for us to understand, because God is crafting a masterpiece in this world, and it's called the church. The the people of God that he's gathered to himself in this world uh, are those that he's preparing to show and declare his glory, and each of these one another verses are moments for him to paint another brushstroke upon his masterpiece. To, to just help us become more and more the people that we were meant to be. So I don't know if you were paying attention as Abby and Emma beautifully read the Bible for us, but there are a couple of one another's in Hebrews chapter 10. We're looking at spurring one another on and encouraging one another. But if you've got your Bible open in front of you right now, you'll notice that there are a couple of really big ideas that just shine out through this section. In fact, there are three commands that begin with, let us. I was thinking of making a terrible dad joke about making a salad, but we're going to follow the three lettuces of Hebrews chapter 10. Yeah, I know you're loving this right now. Um, There are three there. Have a look with me. The first one in verse 22, let us draw near to God. The next one, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope. And then verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on. We're going to get to the one another's, but we need to see how each of these let us commands are actually building upon each other and actually describing for us, it's an invitation from God into a beautiful way of life together as the church. So make sure you've got your Bible open in front of us. 
Who cares what I've got to say? We only care what God has to say. And the first thing is we're going to look at drawing near to God. And, and the point that, that just shines out for me here is that there is full assurance for broken people. There is full assurance for broken people. When we think about drawing near to God, that should blow our minds. I mean, I don't want to disappoint you. I like you. I think you're awesome. But the thought of any of us coming and standing in front of the presence of God is actually just laughable. You and I, sinful, broken people, finite humans like ants in this world before the great and amazing God, the Holy One, the Shining One, the Perfect One, the thought that you and I might step into the presence of that infinite God is laughable. It's ridiculous. And yet this passage just with confidence says, draw near to God. It's, it's part of what it means to be the church, that we draw near to God. How can we do that, given how ridiculous it sounds? Well, there's one reason that you and I can have confidence to draw near to God, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 19. There are two reasons that the author gives us to be confident to draw near to God. The first one, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Well, he's talking about the most holy place, that we have confidence to step into this, this most holy place. The temple had a center called the most holy place, where they believed that the, the presence of God himself was to dwell. And you were not allowed to enter this place. In fact, only one person once a year was allowed to enter the most holy place, and that was a priest. And just to make sure that things went well, they would tie a rope around that priest's leg so that if he went in and stuffed it up, they could drag his corpse back out. Because that's what it's like when sinful people presume to step into the holiness of God. Isaiah, as he's confronted with God in his throne room, falls on his face like he's dead. And yet, we can have confidence to enter. Because by the blood of Jesus, we have a new way. A living way. You know, if you remember the, the account as Jesus hung on that cross, giving up his last breath, it says that the curtain was torn in two. And that curtain was what separated the rest of the temple from the most holy place. By the blood of Jesus, you and I can almost saunter into the presence of God. We can step into the most holy place without any fear, without any worry, because he has completely and utterly changed the dynamic. We can just walk in as we are. The second thing they talk about is Jesus being our great high priest. A priest was someone who made ongoing sacrifices for the ongoing sinfulness of the people of God, right? So why can we have confidence? Because Jesus is the eternal, infinite, great high priest who's never going to stop doing what needs to be done for your sinful soul. You can have confidence that every breath that you take, Jesus is there beside the throne of God interceding on your behalf. He is your great high priest. And so we're called draw near to God. And you might be thinking, yeah, man, I know. Nick, Nick, totally, I get this. Um, when I became a Christian, I realized 
I was deeply sinful, deeply broken. And so I said, Jesus, I, I need you to be my savior. I gave my life to God. I became a Christian. That's exactly what we're talking about, right? A new living way by the blood of Jesus. Well, well yes, if, if you're not a Christian here, that's the truth that you need to hear right now. The only way that you can be restored to God is by the blood of Jesus. But that's not what Hebrews is talking about. This, this section is actually speaking to you and me, Christian people. Did you notice verse 19? Therefore, brothers and sisters. Now, the gospel is not just the, you know, the contract that you sign at the beginning of faith to, to find salvation. It is the air that you breathe. It is the, the life that holds your body together. You are nothing apart from the gospel from the day you became a Christian through to the end of eternity. And so this is exactly who we need to be as the people of God, a people confident to draw near to God. And this is so important because regardless of how long you've been a Christian, God is calling you nearer. God wants to draw you closer. He wants to bring you into his loving presence. He wants to draw you near again to see him in all of his fullness and to be transformed in his presence. And this is so important because I, I genuinely believe that the greatest reason we have Christians in the church who have a spiritual shallowness is not because of an addiction to sin, not because the world is super enticing and so it's really hard to be a Christian. It's not because there's opposition against us for our faith. The reason that there's a spiritual shallowness at times in the church is because we fail to be in the presence of God. We are consistently distant from God. And I think there's a couple of different reasons why we tend to do that. I like to think of it as the thinkers and the feelers. You know, you might lean towards one side of this, or you might be a bit of both. But there are a couple of reasons why we tend to be distant from God, despite the confidence that we can have in this passage. If you're a thinker, someone who thinks big, great ideas, you care deeply about theology, I think sometimes our theology can be theoretical. Sometimes our theology can be theoretical. Sometimes we have all of the answers to all of the questions. We have a wonderful sense of our beliefs as Christians. You have a beautiful system of theology. You can talk about Calvin all day long, right? You might be able to exegete the Bible left and right. You might even be able to do it in the original languages. But if that is the end of your faith, you have failed. Because theology is not an end to itself. Theology is not about learning about God. Theology is about stepping into the presence of God. And experiencing him in spirit and truth. And knowing him with all of our being. Not just our heads, but our hearts and our minds and our souls. And that's the trickiness. That it's important to have theology. Don't hear me wrong. The people that know me best know that I'm a giant theology nerd. You know, they, I get endlessly made fun of for some of the books that I've got on my shelf at home. I care deeply about theology. But theology cannot be the end in itself. It's like you got an invitation to meet the queen. And you, you came to the front of Buckingham Palace, and you're just sitting there looking at this invitation, and you're just absolutely in awe of the font. You know, the color choice is just impeccable. That shade of pink, absolutely delightful. And you just you decide to just take a seat and just admire this invitation until it gets dark, and you realize you've completely missed your opportunity to actually go in and meet the queen. 
right? When our theology is the end in itself, we spend so much time thinking big thoughts about God that we've actually pushed him further and further away. But what does Hebrews call us to? Draw near to God. Theologically, that is, that is a profound statement. But in reality, it's very simple. Come to him. Be with him. Enjoy him. Know his presence. Experience his fullness. Don't, don't settle for facts. Settle for God. So those are the thinkers. You know, we have a, a theoretical theology. I can kind of fall into that sometimes. But for me, where I tend to fall is actually in the feelers category, where it's not so much about having a theoretical theology, but more of a misunderstood theology. Um, these are the people, like myself, who have genuinely met Jesus, been confronted with sin and brokenness, and, and fallen on the, the grace of God. We call Jesus Lord, we've been saved, and we love him. But we continue to live with just a deeper sense of that brokenness. And so we know that Jesus has saved us in that moment when we became a Christian, But when it comes to the day-to-day-to-day-to-day life of faith, we just feel like we're not good enough. We feel guilty and broken. I think, man, I I can't come to God this morning because I sinned this past week in that spectacular way. I can't come to God because I've just been so distant from Him lately, which is kind of dumb when you think about it. I can't draw near to God because I'm not near to God. But for some reason, that's what goes through my head. I can't come to God because I've disappointed Him in so many ways. Just insert your experience in your life, your inner turmoil here, and we allow these feelings and emotions and experiences that we have to actually become a barrier between us and God because we haven't actually understood our theology right. Jesus didn't just die to save you from your sin in that moment that you became a Christian, but in every single moment that you live. Regardless of how you have fallen down this morning, tomorrow, next week, God is beckoning you forward with love in his eyes to say, Jesus has covered you. His blood is enough. His body was given for you. And all you need to do is come near. You might be a nerd. You might be a feeler. You might be a mix of both. The call is to every single one of us that if you call yourself a Christian, to not settle for God at a distance, but to draw near. And actually, it's in his presence that we find everything that we long for. So how do you do it? Well, have a look with me again at verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. A sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. What does that mean? Well, sincerity, honesty, coming to God in your heart exactly as you are. You don't need to put on a mask to come to God. You don't need to pretend that you have it all together. You don't need to tidy up your life before you let God into your house like you do when you invite someone over for dinner. God wants to take you as you are. And the first step to becoming a person that that consistently draws near to God in your life is to not try and fix it all before you come to Him. Come with a sincere heart. Come in full honesty. And that means actually that you bring your baggage to Him and you leave it at the cross. It's a moment of confession and repentance where you actually bring all of your burdens to him and allow him to carry it. And that's where you find the freedom and peace that you long for. And why is that so important? Because when you do that, you will find the full assurance that faith brings. When you understand who Jesus is for you right now, 10 years into your faith, 20 years into your faith, 50 years into your faith, 
There is not a shadow of a doubt left in your soul that God is for you, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. You yourself cannot do anything to separate yourself from the love of God because he has his hold on you. He has you. And so that's the full assurance for broken people. When we understand the gospel as we ought to, we can have that deep sense of assurance even when we stuff it up, even when we fall over. And you will fall over. You will stuff it up. But you can draw near to God. And as we do that, our spiritual maturity deepens not because we are perfect, but because we are consistently with God. We are in the presence of God primarily before we try and fix ourselves. So that's the first thing. Let us draw near to God. There is assurance for broken people. But the second let us that I think is just so brilliant is verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. I love this. There is lasting hope for us in a world of uncertainty. There is lasting hope for us in a world of uncertainty. Um, I hate to, you know, pull the COVID, you know, words out again, but can we just acknowledge how, how few and far between hopes have been lately? Um, where we've been chucked into lockdown and the usual things that we look forward to and long for have been taken away. And especially in sort of the middle of lockdown when there wasn't even a deadline or a finish date in sight, it started to get a bit dark. If we're being honest, even the most optimistic people around us, I'm often known as an eternal optimist, it got a little bleak. And to be honest with you, I'm still feeling it. Here's why. Hope is fuel for humans. We live off it. We thrive with hope. Because can you imagine a life where you literally have nothing to look forward to tomorrow, next week, or a year ahead? That is the darkness that can come upon our soul at times. Those that are particularly feeling the weight of their their depression and, and darkness of life, it's because hope has been zapped out. Hope is fuel for humans. And so I'm actually thankful for this pandemic in one way. You know, don't, don't quote me too much, but I'm thankful that the pandemic has shown our hopes in this world to be the shaking kind of hopes that they are. I'm thankful that even as things have been pulled away from me, it's forced me to reckon that most of my life, I actually base it upon the hopes of this world rather than the eternal hopes of God. Hope is fuel for humans, but we can't settle for the basic, you know, finite hopes of this world because in a moment they can be pulled away from us. In a moment, our life can fall apart. But did you notice that verse 23, that Christian people are a people of hope? Christian people are a people of hope. Let me read it for you again. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Who are the people of God? We are the people who profess a hope. Not a hope for a nice holiday, not a hope for a good house in Mossman. We are talking the real deal. We are talking the transforming hope that only God can bring. We're talking about hope for broken people to experience healing. We're talking about hope for hurt people to receive justice. We're talking about hope for enslaved people to find freedom. Hope for lost people to find who they truly are in Christ. Hope for estranged people to return to God. Hope for resurrection and renewal. Hope for eternal life. Eternal in duration and eternal in quality, all found in being restored to the God that made us. 
And if you poke your, heart, your Bible hard enough, you're going to find that liquid hope oozes out of it because the gospel is the great declaration of hope to a fading and broken world. To you and I and all of our limitations and difficulties, when the things that we've built our life upon start to crumble, the hope of God remains secure, unshakable. Why? Because verse 23, he who promised is faithful. Can I get an amen? Amen. He who promised is faithful. Our hope does not depend upon anything that can be taken away in this world. It's found in the God who made this world. And he is the unchanging, unlying, perfect God who remains constant in his promises. And so we, the people of God, profess a great hope and we have a certainty of hope that no one can ever take from us because our hope is found in him. I love that even when my resolve wavers or my vision wanders, God's hope remains certain. I love that even when I start to feel those doubts creeping in, even when I fail to draw near to God, like we talked about before, even when I indulge in sin and continue to be the broken person that I am, I know for a fact that my hope is still certain because it doesn't rest upon me. It doesn't rest upon this world. It rests upon Him. It's not about how tightly you can hold on to God, but about how tightly God is holding on to you. And can I tell you how tightly He's holding on to you? Very. He will never let you go. And so you can have so much confidence that no matter what happens to you externally or internally, you have a hope. This has got to be a memory verse, guys. We've got to walk away from here and memorize this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Now, it's, it's not about how hold, hard we can hold on to God, but how tightly he holds on to us. But I do think it's a mark of our spiritual maturity that we can hold tightly onto God even when life starts to fall apart. The spiritually mature person is not the one who demonstrates great faith when life is going, you know, swimmingly and everything is going perfect. No, the, the spiritually mature person is the person who rests upon the hope of God even when things are falling apart. And that's why I think Hebrews is saying, let us hold unswervingly to the hope. There's a confidence here. You don't need to worry about your tightness because the hope will always be there. But it's time to grow in your grasp of that hope, to hold tighter and tighter and tighter upon it. And can I say, this is an important world, a word for us in, in, a, in a wealthy country, in a wealthy part of Sydney, that we're going to be tempted and pulled and prodded to find hope in so many other things but spiritual maturity is putting aside all of those other hopes, even when they're present, and saying, no, I will only stand in the living God. I will only stand in the hope that he can offer. And so we are a people who draw near to God, and we are a people of deep hope. But lastly, we're going to get to our one another verse, and this is kind of why you came here, right? You're thinking, Nick, we spent a lot of time talking about what the series isn't about. Well, let me show you. It's important. When we come to verse 24, we see that the people of God who draw near to God... The people of God who have hope in God are the people who consider how they might spur one another on. It's from that foundation of who we are as the people of God that we then encourage one another and push one another along. We are a community in the presence of God. We are a community rooted in faith, but we are a community. We are a community that needs to encourage one another, push one another along. Here's what I want to put it as. We are a committed community Towards the day of hope. Committed community towards the day of hope. 
We just talked about an unshakable hope that God gives us. Well, there's a day where that hope is going to find itself completely realized in this world. I don't know if you saw it at the end, just that last couple of words. It's, it's just there. You might have missed it. But it says, all the more as you see the day approaching. There is a day coming when Jesus will return all of the injustice will be resolved and all of the goodness that you long for will come to you. And so in the meantime, as we live in this like messy middle place, it's time to commit to one another and to push one another further towards that hope. The thing is, humans have this tendency to drift. I know myself that when I'm left to my own devices, even when I know the faithfulness of God, I start to drift. But God has given us the gift of community. It's one thing to say to an individual, draw near to God. It's one thing to say to an individual, you have hope. But we will still find ourselves moving away from those things. But when God gives us each other, that's when things change. Have a look with me, verse 24. Sorry, yeah, 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. I love this. The word here for spur really means stirring each other up, provoking each other, kind of shaking things up a bit. We're not talking about, you know, over a, a nice black coffee after the church service being like, oh, well, thank you so much for handing out the booklets. You did such a wonderful job. That can be a wonderful encouragement to someone. But we're talking about shaking someone up spiritually. We're talking about stirring each other up to press deeper into who God would call us to be. This isn't a, a, a passive, shallow niceness. This is like soldiers standing together in the face of an enemy, spurring one another on into battle. This is us getting together so that our spiritual heat can remain high together, so that we don't start to cool off as we just do life on our own, but that together we might be stronger for Jesus. And what are we spurred on towards? What well, says spur each other on towards love and good deeds? What are the two greatest commandments Jesus says? Love God, love people. What happens when you have faith and trust in God? You start to produce the good works of God. And so it's in the context of community, the church, the bride of Christ, that we are together to pursue love for one another and love for God and to pursue those good works that God has called us to. But it goes on and he starts to make a point of actually talking about meeting together. So look, look at verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You might be thinking, Nick, this is just, you know, dangling the stick, the carrot in front of the horse, you know, you're telling me that we can't not meet together while we're doing online church in our living rooms. Well, I actually think this is a really timely word from God. I think this is God preparing us for the next season ahead. I think he's saying to us that we cannot live and, and thrive in faith if we're going to do it on our own. If you feel anything how I feel, online church has been a struggle, not just because I've got a toddler running around and listening to a sermon's impossible, but it's that lack of connection and spurring one another on. This is a call as we do get the opportunity to meet together in person, to commit to it, to commit to each other, to not settle for having just, you know, the once or twice a month attendance, to not just settle to sitting in the back pew and leaving before the last song, but to actually come together as a community to push one another along in faithfulness to Jesus. Look, I hope that church blesses you. I hope that church enriches your faith. I hope there are a lot of wonderful things that happen for you at church. But can I tell you something? Church is not about you. 
You, you don't come to church for yourself like a spiritual consumer ready to consume the product that you need to then go back and do your life by yourself. No, church is a community of people that you're committed to. That if you've been saved by God, you've been saved into the church and you go there for others, not for yourself. And I worry that in the past, we've let the rest of culture sort of creep into the way that we approach church. As if we need to gain something good for it to work. You know, I'm not going to come to church this Sunday because I heard that Nick's preaching and I'm not super into that. He always puts his hands up and yells at me. I don't love that. I'll wait for a Paul Dale sermon. That's when I like that. Or, you know, I heard that this connect group's on hospitality and they always bring cookies and I can't eat cookies anymore. So I won't come to, you know, those are petty reasons. But we come up with these, you know, these criteria for why we enjoy church and we, we participate in church so much as that it benefits us. But what if it was different? What if we were different? What if we were a community that turned up every single week for the other? You know, there will be stuff that happens that, you know, good reasons why you can't make church on a Sunday or connect group during the week or whatever other commitment that you've had. There will be good reasons for those sorts of things. But if we were really committed to church for the other, they would be few and far between. You know, as a pastor, it would make my heart sore to turn up to church half an hour early before my congregation starts and to just see a huddle of people praying for one another. It would make my heart sore to see the service end and people just having to be kicked out the door because they haven't left yet, because they're too busy encouraging each other. It would make my heart sore to see a people committed to one another even when the music isn't good, even when Nick Wood is preaching, even when the supper's not nice, because we're just so committed to pursuing Jesus together. And so that's why I think the Hebrews author writes, not meeting, giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And this is important, all the more as you see the day approaching. I think some of us get this. We get that we need to be an encouragement. We get that church is not about us. But we've lost a bit of the urgency. Imagine if I told you the date that Jesus is going to return, and it's only a couple of years from now. How would that change the way that you participated in church on a Sunday? I think it would make a huge difference. I think there'd just be this sense of, we need to reach the lost, and I need to build my brothers and sisters up and send them out. I just need to be there every Sunday. But that's still true, even if we don't know what the date is. Jesus is returning. The day of hope is approaching. And let's live like it's right here now. And so that's why I think, to to go back to right at the start of this one another, it doesn't say, let us spur one another on. It says, let us consider how we might spur one another on. Because to be an encouragement to others and to be committed to a church like this, it requires thought. It requires thoughtfulness. You can't just drift into a a loving and sharing and wonderful, you know, blessing to the church community. It takes sitting down and actually thinking through what does it look like for me to participate at 10 a.m. Neutral Bay and serve? What does it take for me to be relationally invested at 7 p.m. Kirribilli and to know others, not just surfacely, but in a way that I can speak into their spiritual good? What does it take for me to turn up to 10.30 Macquarie and to help encourage those young families with little babies who are really struggling because they're sleepless? It's, it's specific, it's intentional, and it requires thought. So just to, to wrap that up, a couple of tips for you. What if you prepared for your time on Sunday at church? What if you just took a moment, you know, the kids are still crazy, they're running around, but you just, you know, even went into the bathroom, closed the door, and just spent two minutes praying that God might give you an opportunity to love. 
What if you, you know, thought through the people in your church gathering, thought, who, who could I have a conversation with this Sunday to bless? If you're a part of a connect group, well, first step, if you're not, join one. Second, if you're a part of a connect group, what would it look like for you to not just turn up and participate in a discussion, but to actually love others with the love of Christ? And relationally, how can you move these, these friendships and people that you have in your church family beyond the surface to actually know them and love them where they need to be loved? I'm sure there's a million other practical pieces of advice that I'd love to hear how we share in our connect groups. Um, but I just want to encourage us to be encouragers. So this, this passage is, is all about this one another, of being a community of encouragement, spurring one another on. But the reason we are that is because we are a people by the blood of Jesus who draw near to God. We have full assurance, but we're also a people of hope who know that even in an uncertain world, we have Jesus with us always because he who promised is faithful. And it's because of those things that we commit to one another, we love one another, and we spur one another on to greater faithfulness to Jesus. I'd love to just stop and pray for that before we go any further. Let me pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much for the love that you have poured out upon sinful humans. We don't deserve an ounce of it. And yet you say that you know, the height and width and our sin and that you keep meeting us in our sin and invite us to draw near. Would you make us a church of people who know intimately the presence of our God? Um, Father, would you impress upon us the hope that we have in Jesus and how much greater it is than anything this world has to offer? And Lord, please, would you help us as we return to church in the next couple of months to be committed to one another, to give of ourselves, but in a way that just launches others towards you, that shakes each other up spiritually. God, would you please bring great transformation to us as a church as we spend time in your presence, in your hope, and with one another. And we ask this for the sake of Jesus. Amen.